federal employees and annuitants have yet another big health premium increase coming their way in 2024. But that's not the only reason the FEHB participants ought to take advantage of that upcoming open season. It starts Monday. Joining me as we discuss this and other health benefit changes on the horizon, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, let's begin with a reminder of how much these premiums are going up next year. So, Tom, on average, that premium increase, at least for the FEHB participants' share, is going to be going up 7.7%. And of course, you know that that means because it's an average that not all plans are going to be increasing. Some are increasing more. Some might not be increasing at all. Some may be increasing less. So that's just one reason that federal health benefit experts are encouraging participants to take a look during open season. The very common statistic that we all hear is that just about 5% or even less than that actually make changes during open season each year. So OPM and other health experts are encouraging more participants to take a look. Given the premium increase, there could be you know, up to thousands of dollars in cost savings each year if participants make the right choices. You got to do that homework, definitely. You know, spread those brochures out on your screen or get the paper ones and put them on the dining room table. I guess 7.7% doesn't seem as bad when compared to last year when they went up 8.7% and the year before that, three something percent. So some pretty sharp increases accumulating over the last couple of years. In the meantime, because of the pullout of one of the major carriers, there's many fewer plans for federal employees coming up in 2024. That's right, Tom. The number of plan options that are going to be available, it's dropping from 271 down to 158. So that's more than a 40% decrease in the number of plan options. The plan options are often variable by geographic regions. So maybe not all of those options are available to every single participant based on where they live. But generally, as you alluded to, the reason that the number is dropping off so significantly is because Humana is exiting the market. So it's not just unique to the FEHB program, but as well as other similar programs to FEHB. So if you are an enrollee who was in a Humana plan or any other plan leaving the FEHB program, there's a handful of others besides Humana. You'll receive notification that you will have to make an election during open season. If you don't make an election, you'll automatically be enrolled in the lowest cost nationwide plan, which is GEHA. Okay. And then there are some options specifically for members of the military. Let's talk about those. So this is specifically in the Dependent Care Flexible Spending Account or DCFSA. Basically, what that does is it lets participants make pre-tax contributions for dependent care services. So this can include things like the cost of preschool, summer day camps, and then before or after school programs for children or adult daycare programs for adults. This is a program that has existed for quite a while, but now it's going to be available to active duty military members. The Department of Defense estimates that there's going to be about 400,000 newly eligible members for that flexible spending account program. So they're encouraging and OPM is encouraging as well military members to take a look if they're interested in that sort of coverage. All right. And OPM, you know, takes an active role in the shapes and in the offerings of what the healthcare insurance industry does under the FEHB. I think it's one of their finer moments every year because these plans tend to be at least as they're always at least as good and often much better than what's available in the private sector frankly even from the same carriers and maybe that's because the federal employee and annuitant population is maybe above average in health or health demand 
But OPM did lay some new requirements on the carriers for 2024. Tell us about those. So one of the big changes that federal employees and annuitants will see is changes to coverages for infertility treatments. So if you're someone who is thinking about family planning and you're going to need that type of treatment, that's something to definitely take a look at during open season this year. The new requirement specifically is for FEHB carriers to cover two forms of artificial insemination and the associated drugs with those, as well as three cycles of drugs for in vitro fertilization. That's quite a significant coverage because this can cost tens of thousands of dollars and the drugs associated with those procedures do cost more than are do make up for more than a third of the cost there. So, you know, it's not going to cover everything and it's still going to be quite an expense, but it's definitely something to take a look at. In addition to infertility, you're also going to see expanded coverage for anti-obesity medications, telehealth options, gender-affirming care, and prenatal and postpartum care for mothers. Right. And uh, we should point out, too, that uh, this is something Kevin Moss told us from Checkbook Guide to these plans, is that these are not extra riders or something you purchase as an option. These are available to everybody on the plan. So in some sense, you know, grandma is subsidizing the infertility costs for the grandkids if they're having trouble conceiving a baby, but now there is help for that. So for those that are annuitants that are on Medicare, the big area of concern is the prescription drug prices covered by Medicare Part D or plans that are the equivalent of Part D and some major changes coming there thanks to federal legislation. That's right. That is the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last year in 2022. And federal annuitants will see some significant cost savings available to them because of those changes. For example, there's caps on insulin, the cost of insulin, as well as out-of-pocket spending caps. And because of that, this makes, according to several federal health benefits experts, including including, uh, Kevin Moss, who we spoke to together, this makes Medicare Part D, very appealing to FEHB participants, and uh, they're encouraged to definitely take a look during open season. Through FEHB, you can access Medicare Part D in in two different types of plans. So you have the Medicare Advantage plans. These have been around for at least the last couple of years, and the number of Medicare Advantage plans available is actually expanding to 28 total in 2024. So that's one option. And then the other option is a new type of plan called a prescription drug plan or PDP. And there are 17 of those that are going to be available in 2024. So FEHP participants do have a lot of options there if they're looking to get that Medicare Part D coverage. And some carriers are going a year early with the national requirement of a $2,000 cap on drug outlays by annuitants, by, by people on Medicare. That's not coming officially till 2025, but some of the carriers are doing it next year. That's right. So it's definitely uh, prudent to take a look during open season. And one area where you can at least look and see what's available is OPM's uh, plan comparison tool. This lets you look by zip code and at different coverages you might be looking at. So that's one way to find a little more detail on what is the right option for you. And anything going on with dental and vision insurance? Right. This is an interesting one, Tom, because the FedFit program itself is not changing uh, entirely, but there is a change for the eligibility of the program. So you have tens of thousands of temporary part-time seasonal employees, as well as those in the USPS, who are going to become 
eligible to get dental and vision care through that program. There was a special enrollment window earlier this year that, of course, has now ended. But anyone who is a seasonal employee or in the USPS, they will be able to enroll in FedVIP if they choose to during open season. So for those employees, this is a very important time as well. And just again, to highlight the dates here, open season runs November 13th through December 11th. So that's the time that uh, you can look and see what is available to you. And also be sure to tune in to Federal News Network's online open season exchange, which is next week. And you and I both participated in that. So lots of information there. I guess dental and vision is kind of like a really enticing bagel. See it and then sink your teeth into it. I guess you could say that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com and tune in to FedLife next Wednesday at 1 o'clock here on 1500 AM for a more detailed discussion of what's coming to FEHB in 2024. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.